From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. A special hello to all of you listening in on one of our affiliates across North America, those of you checking out the podcast at TalkZone.com. Uh, those of you who take the show with you on your mobile device with the uh, Conspiracy Show app for your Android or your iPhone. Hello to all of you checking us out on the, uh, the live YouTube stream. And a special hello to uh, those of you in the YouTube live chat. And if you have a question or a comment, I will try to, uh, to get to it in this hour. Well, I think that about covers it. There's so many ways to listen, so many ways to watch. So however and wherever... You're listening. I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. As I say, open lines this half hour. Ufologist Grant Cameron, after the bottom of the hour, he'll talk about Charlie Red Star, this massive UFO sighting that went on for days in southern Manitoba back in 1975. All right, just some programming notes. Next week, the ARC report, Harry Moskoff, He's a, a rabbi and also kind of a real-life Indiana Jones. I know a lot of people throw that around. No, I'm the real-life Indiana Jones. But this guy, he's got a shovel in hand. He's in Israel as we speak. And he's very, very close to uncovering uh, some treasures from Solomon's Temple. It's going to, apparently, this stuff is going to just stand history on its head. And um, we may have a bit of an exclusive. Who knows? But um, the... the um, the Ark of the Covenant, obviously, is, is also the focus of this book. And uh, Harry was on uh, Coast to Coast with me a short while ago. He'll join us next week. And Harry is quite certain he knows. Uh, he's not going to say 100%, but he's pretty darn certain he knows the exact location of the Ark of the Covenant. And we'll talk about the Ark and also these uh, vessels from Solomon's Temple. Uh, he has a map, and he, uh, he knows exactly where they are. And um, who knows, by next week he may have uncovered those. Harry Moskoff will be with us, along with, of course, our Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator. We'll have our panel uh, next week, as always. Who's up? I think it's, um, who's up next? We have Joe, Joseph Farah from WNED. WND, World Net Daily, yes. Joel Skousen. Joel Skousen, World Affairs. Okay, it's their turn, but we haven't 100% confirmed. However, that's uh, coming up next week on the program. All right. Let's go to Keith in Rochester. Keith, welcome. Yes, uh, following Dr. Maroney, what are the chances that Trump is an emotional addict and that a General Kelly can't keep him in line, even a Marine general? Uh, for some of us conservatives, and we've been saying this right along, unfortunately, this could be the end of the Trump administration. He's down to or up to 61% disapproval, and uh, some of his uh, core groups are really starting to look askance at him. So. Well, he needs to put a couple of W's on the board. There's no question. He needs that tax cut. And once that happens, I'm, I'm pretty confident, uh, you know, assuming things, you know, don't, don't unravel um, precipitously in the coming months, I think they'll get the tax cut. And once he gets that on side, and, and let's say, let's look at the, the you know, the, the indicators right now, the stock market, new record high, the job reports uh, month in and month out are going quite nicely. So that's what you have to focus on, I think. Is well, he, is he, is he, is he erratic? Right. Yes. Is he, um, you know, is he, uh, does he have a massive ego? Yes. 
Uh, is he given to hyperbole and mis, you know, misinformation? Absolutely. But there's an old saying, good policy makes for good politics. And the policy, um, I think, if he can, again, if he can get a couple W's on the board, that's going to win the day. Well, my final comment is everyone is trying to explain this guy in a rational way. In other words, people are trying to give him the benefit of the doubt by running interference for him. But it's like everyone else knows better, and Trump just can't get the message through his, between his ears. And if he's not rational in the way that all of us would like him to be, and if he really lets us down because we're trying to be the same people, this is where the concern is that he's just not going to be able to carry through on his end. Well, I don't think what's preventing Trump, yes, he can be his own worst enemy, but what's preventing much of the policy, uh, much of the agenda from getting through isn't uh, Trump and his Twitter machine. Uh, Trump understands the base likes the Twitter machine. That's not going to stop. What's preventing Trump's agenda from getting through um, is you've got a lot of Obama holdovers in the State Department, the Justice Department, the Treasury Department, the EPA, uh, and then you've got um, senators in you've got senators and you've got uh, House Republicans who simply don't have the courage of their conviction, conviction. So that's that's preventing a lot of this, uh, a lot of the Trump agenda from getting through, as I see it. Well, can I ask in closing? Uh, he was elected on the 8th of November. If I were Trump, I would have announced on the 9th that I would not be keeping Comey as FBI director. In hindsight, that, 100%, Keith, you're absolutely right. Yes. That would have taken away the thunder from the Democrats saying that Comey gave Trump the election. But the point is that uh, he, Trump approaches things like a mafia don. He wants loyalty. He should have, he should have seen the shortcomings in Comey, a dirty cop. In other words, instead of thinking of the 28th of October when Comey decided to reopen the investigation into Hillary, Trump should have been thinking of the 5th of July when Comey allowed Hillary to skate to begin with. But Trump, just being Trump, can't put that together. He's made some drastic mistakes. Well, he is. He's, he's, he's unfortunately, I, I think part of, he's operating under the, the old credo that you, you keep your friends close and your enemies closer. So he's surrounded himself with... Uh, people that are in conflict, for example, with Steve Bannon because they're not the nationalists, they're not the populists that Bannon is. And so, uh, and these are, I, I'm going to call them globalists. Uh, for example, uh, you know, the, the guy that's running the uh, national security, H.R. McMaster, he won't allow Trump's people to route out the, uh, the Obama holdovers. And so, you know, this is this is a problem. He should have cleaned house immediately. Normally what happens, the president comes in, he asks for everybody's res, uh, resignation, and then he decides which ones he's going to accept and who's he's, who he's going to keep. That never happened. It's starting to happen now. It's I don't know if you want to say it's late in the game, better late than never. It should have happened much earlier. That's a problem. You, you know that two nights ago, he uh, Trump gave Big Master thumbs up. That, yes. Yes, he did. Uh, if, if Trump really wants the globalists gone... He should get rid of McMaster, but he's giving out mixed messages. He's McMaster is sacking the true conservatives, and Trump is uh, just uh, ignoring that and blithely going ahead. And uh, a lot of us can't keep up with it, and it doesn't make any sense. We're trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm very conservative. I was a very early Trump supporter. 
but this guy is wearing thin very quickly. He's not acting rational, and it's beginning to hurt the country really bad. I appreciate your call, Keith. Bye. Thank you. Uh, let's say hi to John in Sault Ste. Marie. John, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Thank you for having me on there. How are you this evening? I'm well, thank you. Great. Listen, I am calling you because um, I have some news that I think the public in general would like to know about what's going on in this city. In Sault Ste. Marie? Yes, it is. All right. What's... I, uh, I'm a photographer, and I've been working on this project for approximately six years now. From the time I get up to the time I go to bed, seven days a week, I don't take a day off. And what project is that, John? I'm photographing changes in the environment up here. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll be specific. Uh, number one, and I hope everybody's ready for this, literally thousands, and I do mean thousands, of trees, shrubs, bushes, of all sorts, shapes, and sizes are popping up out of the ground literally overnight, and nobody is planting them. Mm -hmm. Number two, this is even tougher. Well, hang on. First of all, why is that a bad thing? Well, it's not a bad thing. It's just a hard thing to believe for oh, most people, right. I would think. Uh, but I have the photographic documentation, you might say, on it, literally, before and after the fact. All right. Two, the entire in-ground power grid of this city, approximately two years ago, just prior to Christmas, was literally ripped out of the ground, put back up on wooden poles like you used to see in the country, the old T-poles. Right, the, right. Yes. The entire city now has wires crossing the streets everywhere. They used to be underground in large parts of the city? It's virtually the whole city, except for a few lines. Is that right? I, I mean, I know that was very popular in some neighborhoods. They started to do that just because it's kind of an eyesore. Right. Uh, and also, I think, you know, you know, maybe in a winter climate, it's it's easier to to maintain the lines. And to well, it, it also provides protection for the, for the line, the grid. That's uh, right. When, when the line's in ground. Um, okay, so you're saying they're taking, in Sault Ste. Marie, they're taking them out of the ground and they're putting them back on the old-fashioned poles. Except... The PUC is not doing it. It happened literally overnight. I woke up one day, went outside, and I looked, and I went, oh, my God, what is going on? All along Great Northern Road, which is a main drag, which didn't have any power poles on it, one day had it the next day. And I looked, and I went, this is not possible, but it's there. And I happened to have pictures prior to quite prior to, and afterwards. Did you call your city councillor? Uh, I've been stonewalled at every corner in this city. It's literally a waste of time to talk to any public official. What do you think is going on, John? Uh, that's the question, isn't it? What is going on? Because that is, from my point of view, pretty much an impossibility. Uh, things like that don't. That's happen. a major infrastructure undertaking. I mean, it takes it. It would take years under normal circumstances. Exactly. And yeah. I'll top it off with another one: the lights, which are normally, uh, I believe, they're mercury vapor, mm -hmm. uh, your standard street light. Virtually overnight, every street light in this city changed to LED, and all the old mercury vapors disappeared. 
just gone. Overnight. Overnight. I literally mean overnight. That sounds, uh, yeah, that's pretty hard to swallow. It However, is. Hey, listen, if there's anyone else up there in the Sioux uh, who wants to weigh in, weigh in, I would love to hear from you tonight. And um, you've heard what John has to say. So you've got a number of things going on in that city. You have trees and uh, bushes by the thousands. Literally. Just springing up. No one's planting them. And then you have the um, mercury vapor lights being uh, changed over to LED, he says, virtually overnight. And then the power grid, which was buried underground, now crisscrossing the city streets again, virtually overnight. Well, are you ready for another one? Quickly. Yes. The entire city has been repainted. Persons' houses, businesses, commercial, inside and out. It seems to be a, a, a I would call it military grade color paint. Dull, flat, white houses literally turning black overnight. It happened so fast, I nearly fell off my chair three or four times on that one. Well, I'm going to try and stay in my chair, because what you're <laughs> saying, John, uh, is... This is the facts. I have photographs to back everything up I'm saying. Going back six years, literally daily, and I've shot as many as, I believe, close to 800 in one day. All right. Thank you for this, John. Strange things afoot up in Sault Ste. Marie. Open Lines continues. Stay with us. The truth will set you free. But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. Open Lines till the bottom of the hour. And then we'll be joined by world-renowned ufologist and historian Grant Cameron. You may be familiar with Grant's fantastic website, presidentialufos.com. Uh, where he goes around uh, the country, scours the presidential libraries looking for documents relating to UFOs, and then posts them on his website. And uh, he'll be along to talk about... Uh, he has a new book out on Charlie Red Star. This was um, a very famous... Uh, well, just a spate of UFO sightings in southern Manitoba back in 1975. Grant was a witness to this, and this really, again, changed the trajectory of his life. Understandably so. So, Grant Cameron, bottom of the hour. Right now, open lines continue. And uh, why don't we go over to the um, the YouTube, the live chat forum, and see if there's any questions there. Ryan? Yeah, Jim Sharp, a longtime viewer in the YouTube chat, asks, is there any possibility of expanding the format in length or more shows a week? And a lot of people said, yeah, I'd like to see. Well, um, I would, I'd love to be able to do that. But, uh, you know, I'm kind of... You know, at the mercy of uh, of the programmers here at Zoomer Radio, uh, if they they felt a strong need, I mean, I would certainly like to petition them to, to you know to do more shows. Uh, but you have to understand, you know, this is the flagship station. It is primarily a music station, so I'm very fortunate to have this slot carved out for me. It was kind of an experiment. Moses Neimer took a, a big chance, and um, uh, so I'm grateful to have the two hour show. Would I love to do more? Absolutely. Uh, who knows, maybe what we could do at some point in the future, uh, uh, you know, I, I can't promise this, but maybe we'll do uh, we'll do more podcasts or something, or maybe we'll do we'll do uh, an extra YouTube show just for the YouTube um, every week. 
we wouldn't have. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how we would do that. That that's in the future, though. I I really can't think about taking something like that on right at the moment. Uh, I will hope uh, hopefully have some news in the coming weeks, if not sooner, about a new project and a new podcast that I'll, I'll be launching. But I can't uh, divulge any more right now. Uh, let's see. Why don't we go to the email and uh, Albert? Well, we got a compliment this time finally from Paul of Newfoundland. What do you mean finally? <laughs> finally, a compliment. Uh, in response to those who don't appreciate the new format, come on, guys, give it a chance. I run to the podcast most of the time and enjoy both styles. I'm okay, but mostly grateful for the boys in the band producing a thought-provoking couple of hours every week. Keep up the good work. Paul of Newfoundland. Oh, thank you for that, Paul. So he likes, again, those not aware, we have, um, I would say within the last, what, two months, initiated this new format where we have more guests, we have a panel off the top, we move a lot quicker, tight segments. Uh, in the first hour, second hour, we have open lines every week, and then we have a sort of a long-form interview, the last half hour, with a guest. Contrast that. Previously, we would do two guests, one each hour. Some people prefer the new format, some like the old. Uh, again, just to reiterate, what we do, though, is generally once a month, uh, because I, uh, I host Coast to Coast AM, uh, sometimes that falls on a Sunday. So the way we package the show on the Sunday when I'm hosting Coast is the old format. We do two hours. Last uh, uh, Two Sundays ago, or was it last Sunday, we did the, the, the Roswell special. Right. We did the full Don two Schmidt. hours with Don Schmidt. So that's going to happen once a month. One out of the four weeks, you're going to get the old format. The other three, as I say, we've got so many things happening at breakneck speed. What's going on in the world right now? Yeah. So I just I felt that it was important because it's only a weekly show and we only have two hours. If we're going to get to a lot of those stories, that's why we initiated the new uh, the new format. But listen, I'm I'm paying attention to your emails and I'll take I'm taking them all under consideration. Believe me. All right, uh, let's see. Uh, let's go to Kev in New York. Hey, Kev, good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good morning. It's uh, good evening over here, too. Um, I want to mention to the idea of uh, Donald Trump, and um, uh, it seems to, to be that the, that the Republicans are facing um, themselves in the right and uh, putting themselves up as the direction to go. Now, we understand that America is the most dangerous country in the world, more death and uh, uh, um, problems in in the states. And, wait, 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 hang on. The United States, the most dangerous country in the world? Sure. There's You're not more being serious. In America than anywhere else in the world. More deaths. Well, what does that mean? You have to look at it per population. The United States is nowhere near the most deadliest country in the world. I mean, if you want violence, you go to places like Mali and Africa. You go to places like Afghanistan. You go to places like Somalia. Uh, You're not having a thousand people dying every day or anything. Well, that's like because that. you have that's 300. Better. You have 300 million people. Over 300 million people. You have to look at it based on population. The United States would rank as one of the more, what is one of the safest countries in the world, Kev. With the population to think that 300 million people are, you know, 350 million people and, and thousands of people dying and the way that, the, the way it, it's publicized 
It seems to be a degradation to society to think that America's believing. Every death diminishes us, right? But yes, but you're talking about violent death. It's not thousands of people every day. You do have well, you have gang problems in the inner city that's fueled by drug war. Uh, uh-huh. Certainly, there are. Oh, listen, the United States has a lot of problems. It's a big country, but it's not the most dangerous country in the world by a long stretch, Kev. I think through through the idea of law, I understand what you're saying in in terms of other nations being being dangerous. Yes, I understand that. But I think in terms of uh, logic and education, um, that it is. And with with um, with the future coming. And saying that um, the elected elected representative of the presidency um, being um, like Donald Trump, for instance, is neglecting to the fact that it's environment. He hasn't mentioned anything about the firestorm over here in America, and it seems to be threatening. What firestorm? Well, um, the number of fires that are happening here in the United States. There's there's 20 fires out there in the northwest or southwest. That, you know what that yeah. happens that happens every year. It's part of the natural cycle. That's how forests replenish themselves. Now, you know, unfortunately, sometimes what happens is, you know, people uh, and their property suffer as a result. But you cannot have the natural regeneration of a forest without forest fires. They're good. It's a it's a it's a positive I understand thing. That. I understand that they the property have property damage is, is with yeah. with the the old growth of those trees and so forth where they say that it does represent uh future growth with the fire that does occur but with the idea to like all the flooding and so forth and the weather system that has happened in the in you know we're in a catastrophic um um dilemma Kev, and Kev, I know there's a lot of bad there's a lot of bad uh, stuff happening. He hasn't mentioned anything about like saying, for instance, Kansas City had a ton of water down there, and they could pipe right. that stuff right up there, set it right up there. He, he you know, and put that stuff out immediately. <laughs> well, yeah, you got a lot of stuff going on. You got a lot on your mind, Kev. My my advice to you is just sit back, sit back and relax a little bit, and thank your lucky stars. You live in the United States or up here. We thank our lucky stars. We live in Canada. Two of the greatest places to live, the safest places to live, the stablest places to live, uh, places that at least at 1228 on uh, August the 7th, 2020, uh, 2017, still uh, value personal freedom. Be thankful, Kev. Count your blessings. Yeah, there's a lot of problems. There is a lot of trouble in the world, but there are a few of them on this side of the pond. I can assure you of that. All right. Do we have time for one more? I think we do. Uh, let's say hi to Steve, also checking in from New York. Hey, Steve, good morning. Good morning. Good good to talk to you, Rich. Likewise. Uh, two things. I'll, I'll make them quick. One, I am a uh, pain patient of Dr. Gosey's up here in Buffalo, uh, I've had uh, five back surgeries. I've got nine discs that are fused in my body, thoracic, mid-back, and uh, in my neck also. Been off work since all one. Uh, I've been on these pills. They've they've never hurt me. And people around here, when you hear it on the news of somebody dying, they're dying from the heroin, bud. Heroin, okay. 
next time that guy comes on, your guest that was on earlier, ask him where the heroin's coming from and who's bringing it into the country. No, he, if we had him on, I had him on coast for two hours and we talked about that, but he, what he's saying is that it starts out with the opioids and then, um, right. it, how it's getting out into society, he describes it as a tree. You know, it, it's it's multifaceted. You have, for example, you have children whose parents are using opioids for legitimate reasons, but then the kids experiment, and then they can't. Then they have they lose access to it. So where else do they go for that kick? They go to heroin. It becomes a gateway. Uh, yeah, bad stuff should not be. Should, they should find a way to stop that from getting in our part of the world. Second thing is. Uh, you heard this past week about the big spill up here in the falls from the water. Yes. Uh, the, the wastewater. Yeah. You, you guys get your drinking water from from the from the lake here? Not from Niag- not from the Niagara River, my friend. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. Well, we get ours, which is uh, I'm, I'm out here in Wilson, which is you probably know right across the creek from you. Uh, we believe I believe we get our water from Tonawanda area. Right. Hopefully, it's on the right side of the spill. <laughs> But I'll tell you what, if I was you guys, if you guys got your water from uh, from the Lake Ontario, uh, like maybe Rochester does, I don't know for sure, but I'd be pissed. Well, I yeah. think I think a lot of it uh, comes from the moraine, doesn't it, Ryan? Don't we get a lot, or Albert, don't we get a lot of our, doesn't the water come from the Oak Ridge's moraine? It comes down. We may get some of it from Lake Ontario, but I can't imagine. Thanks for taking my call, buddy. All right, appreciate it, Steve. Getting a lot of calls from New York tonight. Uh, let's say hi to, do we have time for one more, Ian? You're cutting it close. Well, I live dangerously. Dennis is in New Jersey. Dennis, make it quick, my friend. Hello, Mr. Ferret. Hi. You just got a, You got 30 seconds to shine, 30 brother. 30 seconds. Okay. Like when you, when you want to be a G, DJ. Okay. Um, I really don't agree with the gentleman with the pain thing. I'll tell you why. Okay? Uh, I've been not as serious as the previous caller, but I've had back pain. Right now, I'm just moving in a certain way, and it's like a knife in my back, and it goes down my leg. Right. And they want to put screws in my back. I said no. Thank you. Uh, they won't give me anything um, other than nerve relaxers and things from my back. They won't give you the opioids because they're 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 afraid of the consequences. Yeah, that, right. one, uh, one one man in an emergency room. I had to drive myself to the emergency room twice, two different ones, and one man like almost threw me out. He started screaming at me. Blame it on Obama. Blame it on on Obama. Blame it on the uh, on the government. Um, and uh, well, Dennis, kind of listen. I, I, I walk when I went in there. I, I, I feel for you. Um, what you're giving me is anecdotal evidence. So you're saying you don't have a problem, but you can't, you can't ignore the statistics. I mean, it's a, it's a death storm. What's happening? Yeah. And just because you know certain people don't become addicted, doesn't mean that people aren't dying on mass. And the answer, I agree, is not to deny you your opioids. Uh, or to deny the caller earlier, I think it was Steve in New York, is opioids. But we have to figure out how to get a handle on this. We have to stop the heroin from flooding in. Maybe that's the wall. That's not going to hurt. It can't hoit, as they used to say. All right, thank you, Dennis, in New Jersey. When we come back, ufologist Grant Cameron, Charlie Redstar. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up next week, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator. Also, Rabbi Harry Moskov will be uh, checking in direct from Israel. And uh, here's his latest, The Ark Report. Secret for the century. He says he knows where the Ark of the Covenant is. We'll talk about the Ark of the Covenant. But also, 
uh, perhaps even more pressing, we may get a, a, a kind of a world uh, exclusive here because, as I say, he's in Israel and he is about to perhaps uncover uh, some items from Solomon's temple. He's got a shovel in his hand probably as we speak, uh, but when he, when he got to the location, he has a map that he um, acquired. We'll find out how. And uh, when he got there, there's, there, there are these boulders on the property. This is a secret that goes back a hundred years ago. And he, he found a map, got to the property. It hasn't been developed yet. It's a farm, or it's I guess it's uh, vacated, but it's uh, there are boulders on the property. So now he needs to get a bobcat there in order to get the boulders off. And then underneath that, apparently, some um, priceless items from Solomon's Temple. This is exciting stuff. All right, back in 1975, Manitobans reported UFOs over their province almost nightly. The string of unprecedented sightings launched the biggest UFO craze in Canadian history. With sightings for well over a year, one object seen again and again again became known as Charlie Red Star, and Grant Cameron was there. He witnessed Charlie Red Star many times and led tours for others to see for themselves. He also cut wind of rumors of nuclear testing south of the Canada-U.S. border, which might have been the cause of the unexplained phenomena that was sighted in the upper atmosphere. In his new book, Charlie Red Star, True Reports of One of North America's Biggest UFO Sightings, the story is revealed by eyewitnesses, photographers, reporters, chasing down the truth behind these still unexplained encounters with UFOs. Grant Cameron has been a UFO researcher since 1975, not surprisingly, and was recognized as both the leader and has been a UFO researcher since, uh, sorry, was recognized as both the Leeds Conference International Researcher of the Year and the UFO Congress Researcher of the Year. He's a world-renowned expert on UFOs, conspiracies, government cover-ups, and has spent decades watching and chronicling developments around extraterrestrial contact. He lives in Winnipeg, and his website is presidentialufos.com. Grant Cameron, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. It's been a while. How are you? Good, Richard. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate your interest in my, what I'm up to. My pleasure. Charlie Red Star, True Reports of one of North America's biggest UFO sightings. Well, thank God f- for you on this issue, Grant, because I don't. It, this massive UFO sighting, it went on for o- a year. It doesn't get its due. It's overshadowed, of course, by Rendlesham and Roswell and, and some of the others. Why doesn't it get its due? Well, it may get its due now. I guess that was partly my fault. Is What happened was when I, I saw the object the first night it went out, I had no interest in UFOs. I just went out and... Uh, bought the lottery ticket, expecting not to win, and this thing flew right in front of the car. And it wasn't a light in the sky, it was an object in front of the car. It was just a little ways down the road, pretty low. I sort of fell off the edge of the earth, and I uh, went out two nights later, and it came right at me the second night. And I had friends with me, and I was sort of infatuated, and I suddenly realized there was people all over the place seeing this thing, and I started to document it. And it was about... um, Two years later, I finished the manuscript, and I tried to publish the manuscript in Toronto, and they sort of looked at it, but nobody was really interested. And then I went to the big publisher here in Winnipeg. It was a big story back in 1975. Everybody knew about this thing. And um, like the local TV station had caught it on the ground and filmed it on the ground and stuff. It was just bizarre. And so when I went to the local publisher here, she said, Mr. Cameron, you may believe in this kind of stuff count me among the unbelievers. And I was floored. I mean, I, I went on to investigate the Canadian government and Dr. Eric Walker and the President of the United States. 
just to find out what I had seen, but I gave up on the whole Carmen thing and the sightings. I just figured this is a total waste of time, and I can tell people these stories. Nobody really cares. And so what I did was, I didn't even realize this, I gave this, the manuscript to my sister, who's sort of like the 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 historian for the family. 35 years, 35 years later, she comes back to me and says, oh, you remember you gave me this? And I went, what? And I looked, and it was the con- entire manuscript. I didn't even remember writing. I remember I had written some parts of it. Well, it's 42 years ago. That's a long, you know, that's a long yeah. time ago. And so when she gave it to me, then I optically scanned it because the optical software was out. And then uh, Teza uh, Lawrence from Toronto uh, read the manuscript, and she said, well, I'd like to option this for a movie. And then she's the one that negotiated it. I really got sort of dragged, kicking and screaming the whole way. So the story never really got publicized because I gave up on it in 1977 when I was told by this local publisher to get lost. And the story just sort of died out. But that's happened before. For example, Rendell's from Forest, you remember, 1947, it happened. The story was big for one or two days, the same as the Carmen thing. You mean 1980, 1980, Rendell's from? Yeah, 1980, it it re-emerged. But from 1947 until 1980, nobody talked about Roswell. The name. Oh, I'm sorry. You, uh, yeah, you mentioned Rendlesham. I thought you were you were talking about uh, yeah 1980. But yeah, yeah Roswell that, 1947. That with stories like with the Roswell story, sure. nobody from 1947 until 1980 talked about Roswell. Right. It right. was when Bill Moore came out with the book, um, the Roswell Incident, that suddenly Roswell became famous. But for 40 years, nobody talked about it. And it may be the same thing with Carmen. Is just that the, uh, the the people have sort of died away, and and the story just sort of faded away. But now the book is out, and a lot of people are going to realize, like, wow, they didn't realize how big the story was. All right, when we come back, we're going to take a time out. When we come back, we'll uh, we'll we'll get into it as much as we can in time in the time that uh, remains. Grant Cameron, the author of Charlie Red Star: True Reports of One of North America's Biggest UFO Sightings. This is 40 years in the making. It's finally out, and we'll learn about this remarkable, remarkable story. Stay with us. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Grant Cameron, and we are talking about Charlie Red Star, true reports of one of North America's biggest UFO sightings. It's published by Dundurn. Now, this starts in 1975. It it starts with, what, one person seeing it, and then it snowballs, and then soon more and more people are seeing it, and they're seeing it not just once. They're seeing it, in some cases, every night, these fireballs. Yeah. It starts in February of 1975 as the first report, and because Bob Demert, who had the airport in the Carmen area, uh, was one of the main witnesses, um, everybody was going to the airport, and he was sort of being like the tour guide and taking people around. But it was also going... uh, on all over the place. The National Enquirer was going to call it the UFO capital of the world. They were up, and I was sort of touring the National Enquirer guy, Bob Pratt, around to all these different towns and people who were seeing stuff. But he was flying out every every other day. Like Wisconsin was getting hit with sightings. Minnesota, he'd fly to Wisconsin, then he'd fly back. Ontario had these huge triangles of, of earth that were being lifted up in Ontario the same year. Uh, there was the highest rate of cattle mutilations at, during that year. All along the Canadian-U.S. border, and this is where the nukes come in, all along the Canadian-U.S. border, all the uh, SAC bases, there was Loring, Wirtz Smith Air Force Base on the Michigan-Canada border, uh, Minot, South of Me, uh, Malmstrom, all reported in 1975 
uh, UFOs inside the weapon storage areas where they were keeping the nuclear missiles. Well, didn't didn't Malmstrom have uh, nukes deactivated in '67 by 67, UFOs? Yeah. yeah, and they had they had them in '75 as well, but they were just in around the the missiles, and they had a pile of cattle mutilations at the same time around the, around the missile silos. So there was all these activities going along. Uh, the Canadian border, and the CIA in Wisconsin actually sent two officers in Wisconsin. They had so many sightings. So I just deal with the Manitoba part, where, where we were dealing with what was going on here. But it was going all along the Canadian border at the same time. And this was, uh, I think, key uh, part was it was the end of the Vietnam War. And um, I think the, the nuclear missiles were on alert all, all these different places because the Americans no longer had troops in Southeast Asia, and they were waiting for this domino theory. They were waiting for the Russians to... Uh, try to grab the next country, and I think they were probably thinking about maybe using the nukes. So um, that's when I discovered, but again, I didn't discover it for 35 years, that in 19, in February, when the sighting started here in Manitoba, in North Dakota, a town called Nakoma, in North Dakota, they were busy installing 100 new nuclear missiles. And North Dakota had 300 Minuteman three missiles. They, they were the ones that would take out Russia and China and everything. And they were the primary target of the Russians, because you've got to take them out before you take out Washington. And they had, pre-Star Wars, they had built all these, they put a hundred missiles that would try to shoot the, the Russian missiles as they were in outer space, and these little sprint missiles that would try to get it as they were coming in to, to destroy the American missiles. And so they put them in in February, that's when the sighting started, and then they negotiated with the Russians in November of 1975 and started taking those hundred missiles out, and that's when the UFOs faded out and went away. Interesting. So when I talked to Bob, uh, to the, the guy that ran the airport, I said, how many sightings did you have in 75? He said, 150. I said, how many have you had since 1975? And he said, none. Uh-huh. It's like the it's like the CIA took the drugs out of the water. <laughs> it's almost like Rendlesham Forest writ large because you had the same sort of situation there. You had the Russian, uh, the Soviets, uh, yeah. on the border with uh, Poland, getting ready to invade. This was during you know uh, Lekwalesa and the. Uh, um, the the Gdansk ship workers and so forth. People remember that episode, Christmas '79, and then into 1980, uh, and you had U.S. nukes at Bent Waters Air Force Base, the joint U, uh, U.S. and RAF Air Force bases in uh, Rendlesham Forest. Now there was only you know one one or two sightings or one one craft sighted over several nights in 19, Christmas 1980. Here you had. You had people not only seeing in Manitoba, uh, Grant, red fireballs. Some were describing them as Ferris wheels. What else? What other kind of crafts were they seeing? Well, the one, the one that was the best was, um, and I don't think the, the station even remembers they did it, but they caught this thing on the ground. What happened was all the crew, the TV crews were trying to go out and film it, and CKY here in Winnipeg actually almost got it the one night, and then they sent out a crew the second night, and they, it was on the ground, and they could see it was, it was, going up and going down in intensity, and the guy was ready to shoot, and they actually sent um, two cars, one from the north, one from the south, and the car on the north actually came around, and this thing was on the ground, and they, the way it was described to, to them, they, they saw it just before it jumped in the ground and was filmed by the TV crew. Um, it was a 50-foot-high object, which was blood red. It was a classic-type flying saucer, uh, but it was on an angle. It was sitting like a movie screen tilted up in the air and it wasn't touching the ground it was hovering off the ground and when they looked around to see where they're you know because it's at night they're trying to see where they were in the countryside they looked back and the thing was gone and they couldn't figure out where to go it disappeared and it actually jumped the estimates were 5,000 feet in three frames of film 
So in the bottom, the first frame of film, it's on the bottom. The second one, it, it's what's called a flash frame, where it completely lights up the entire horizon for one twenty-fourth of a second, one frame of film. And in the third frame, and the camera's eight and a quarter miles away, in the third frame, you see the object on the top of the frame. So it, it jumped 5,000 feet in like three twenty-fourths of a second. And that was the best because they had there was uh, I think three pilots. There was the reporters. Um, it, it was a lot of good witnesses who had this. And the next day they went the planetarium here in Winnipeg actually went and got the radiation readings from the spot where the thing was sitting. Um, there was at one point there was a, a Royal Canadian Mounted Police constable who was called to the farm uh, to see the UFO. What did he report? Well, the first one that, that reported it, uh, they got transferred out. And, and two days later, and, and in Canada, like with the RCMP, when you get transferred out, you could end up in the middle of nowhere. But they had reported to the National Enquirer, they could reported that they, yes, had seen this object. So later on in 76, I had an incident where the RCMP uh, have catch me on a side road with a bunch of kids, and we were following this thing, and, and this triangle came, sat on top of the car, uh, high up above the car, and then flew off, and this RCMP officer came up. And I just said, you see that object there? He said, what's going on? You see that object? He looked, and there was this clear triangle of three lights flying along. And then I showed him what was going on, and he just took off. He realized, do not go on the record with this thing. And I remember the kids chasing this RCMP officer car down this road with flashlights to get his, his license plate number. I mean, he, he realized what I was doing because I'd been written up in the paper. Uh, so the RCMP made one report, but after that, they they never got involved. We would hear reports about them going to landing sites and stuff like that, but nothing ever appeared in, in writing after that first incident where they these two guys made a report and then suddenly disappeared off the, the face of the earth. Were any efforts, uh, have you ever tried to use a FOIA request to see if you could find corroborating radar reports? Well, we don't think there would be radar because these were very low. That was one of the key things about it. It was like really low. I mean, they would never, Winnipeg is 35 miles. These things were maybe 100 feet up, maybe not even that, 150 feet, very low to the ground and moving very, very slow. So radar, it would be too low for radar and it would also be moving way too slow. These things were moving slow enough. The second night I was there, with a, there was a second car. There was cars all over the place trying to see this thing. They took off after it, and I had incidents myself where you could actually catch up with it, with a car. You could actually gain on this thing. It, that's how slow this thing was moving. Well, some people describe them as kind of almost playful. Yeah, they were very playful in, for the first year, and then the second year, uh, I would flash lights. They put these small, we called we, we call them ground lights, and I talked to a guy who ran for, uh, was with the Canadian government when they were investigating in the early 50s, and he said, oh, you mean monitors. He said, oh, yeah, we had those things back in 1950. They were all over the place. And so these monitors are orbs of light. We were flashing lights at them, and they would react to, to uh, flashlights. And that's when the thing uh, came and sat on top of the car. So uh, at that point, it was the scariest moment of my life. I can say nothing even came close to that. And then it was very bizarre. It was sitting there above the car, this big, huge triangle of lights. And then it just moved, almost like you'd cut a film. It just sort of jiggled just a bit, and the, the fear instantly went away. It was the weirdest moment of my life, but the, the scariest moment of my life. So, and we, we chased them for a year. Like, as I said, we, you could chase, chase these things. But then when it came after me, it, it was a completely different thing where I realized it was, it was coming towards the car, and it, was, and it sat there, and um, then the fear went away as it, it moved away. But Were there any, were there any, uh, any people who, who reported missing time or, or anything like that? 
Well, that's that's the other thing is, is this is the time when this didn't happen. People always think that everything happened all the time, and I can tell you back then, um, really the only abductions that have been reported is Benny and Barney Hill, uh, the Pascagoula case in '73, and Travis Walton was abducted in 1975. Right, exactly the same time where they take him for five days to make a big splash. They want the story out, so we really didn't know about. Tra- um, um, missing time at that point. There was one kid I interviewed who his, his mother believed it was the devil. I was not allowed in to interview this kid. His father brought me in surreptitiously one night to talk to this kid. Uh, I'm sure this kid had been had been abducted. The nosebleeds, this thing was very close to him. Very, very bizarre. One of the most dramatic cases of this little seven-year-old kid. Uh, his father telling me the story and the, the kid hiding behind his chair on the other side of the room. Uh, but I would never go back because uh, and check because there was this thing about the family believing this was the devil, and this kid may still believe that I know who the kid is. So we, at that time, we really didn't believe, we didn't know much about abductions. That only started with Missing Time with Bud Hopkins' book and stuff like that, which right. came later. Grant Cameron, uh, Charlie Red Star, True Reports of One of North America's Biggest UFO Sightings. So you, you wrote this book back in 77, then sort of forgot about it. Yeah. When you went back and read it, was there anything that shocked you, like that you had forgotten about and then all of a sudden it hits you upside the head it's like oh my god that happened oh absolutely that that was the, the key thing was the, the one was why were they there and i went back i was doing a lecture i went back to talk to bob deemer at the airport i said bob why were they here and he said well you know why they're here and i said no i don't he said yeah i told you why they were here in 75 i said bob it's been 30 years i have no idea why these in this small manitoba town he said the nukes i told you they were coming from the united states would sit in the hills and I told you about this pilot who had, they had one over a nuclear missile silo, and they were told to ram it, and this guy pulled out of the formation at the last minute, and this thing pulled, pulled away. He said, I told you it was the nukes. And so that was game as a shot. And then I found about these hundred missiles that they put in, and it all made sense. The other thing was the, the thing about randomness. You assume that all these things are random, and I always say to people now, if you see a UFO, you're part of the game, because if they don't want you to, to be seen, abduct people they don't, you don't see them so when you see them they're you're meant to see them and it was this thing about this guy making this film the cky guy where he says the next time this thing moves up i'm going to shoot and as he shoots the thing jumps in the air and i no longer think that was random it was almost like the ufo saying okay you ready to shoot here goes and he pushes the camera and this thing jumps up so there's these two six inches pieces of film which became world famous in 75 and now I no longer think that was random. He, it was planned that it would jump exactly when he pushed the, the trigger on the camera. So what were you doing so, in 1975 in February? And had I mean, had you not experienced this, y- your life yeah. would have taken on an entirely different trajectory. What what were you doing in 75 before this happened? Well, absolutely. I mean, I was at university. Uh, I was interested in paranormal phenomena. I had done a, a study at university for one of my courses, a full ah. term where I went to hospitals and I talked to people about dying patients, about weird things that happen at, at, at death, like people seeing people, right. uh, being able to predict your death, near-death experience and stuff. So I was into weird sort of stuff, but I, I never thought about UFOs. And I, I've said my whole career is being dragged down one rabbit hole after another. I never would have gotten into this because I had no interest whatsoever. And that's where I think that, because I was going to go in February, and, and we never went. And it was only when they caught this film, when they, when this thing was caught on the ground, which didn't look random. And then I'm thinking, I wonder if they actually allowed themselves to get caught on the ground. It's the only time it's ever happened in history that, of ufology that I know of, where a TV crew has actually caught a thing on the ground and filmed it. Uh, then I'm thinking, well, maybe they needed me out there. They wanted to drag me out. Cause they, my we all need you thing. out there. We all need you out there, Grant. And thank God 
you dusted this off and are presenting it to the world. Charlie Red Star, true reports of one America of North America's biggest UFO sightings. This is epic, folks. Absolutely epic, and hopefully there'll be a movie as well. Grant, thank you so much. I appreciate it, Richard. My thanks to Ian Robertson, Albert Vinzel, and Ryan White back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along for the ride. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our panel, open lines, what's in the box. See you then. <laughs>